Isaiah chapter 55, starting at verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. This is the word of the Lord. Lovely to see you all this morning. Six to eight are heading out for their time of teaching for the rest of us. Uh, I don't know where to tell you to keep your Bible open. Just be really good at flicking it because we're going a lot of places this morning, people. Uh, Oh, look, they get their own slide. That's so cool. Uh, Let me lead us in prayer and uh, we'll get stuck into our doctrinal, aka topical sermon for today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you speak to us in your word and for our good and that you do so in the power of your Holy Spirit that works among us. We pray that you'd help us to concentrate now, to think carefully about the things that you've revealed to us in your word, uh, that we might be better equipped to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Friends, our modern English Bibles contain 66 books, 39 that make up the Old Testament, 27 that make up the New. All throughout history, though, just as Jesus and his apostles were attacked for what they held to be God's genuine revelation, well, so too the church has often been attacked for what it holds to be God's genuine revelation. One such attack is the suggestion that the books that make up our Bibles were included only on the basis that they served the political interests of those who had power during the time they were constructed. Uh, You might have heard someone parrot that idea that poor Roman Emperor Constantine kind of decided what was in and out in 325 of the Council of Nicaea and P.S. he made up the Trinity, stuff like that. Another attack comes from the notion that the original manuscripts said one thing, But as each one got copied and passed on, copied and passed on, copied and passed on, inevitably there were little mistakes that were made and basically we're playing a 2,000 year long game of Chinese whispers so that what we have originally as the word of God is very different to what you and I actually read today. Issues like these are concerned with what we call uh, the topic of the canon of scripture. Uh, It's not canon is in a sense of a big gun. Uh, It's a Greek word that means rule or standard. Uh, It originally referred to literally a measuring rod by which you've got a standard of measure. Uh, The Apostle Paul, for example, writes in Galatians 6.16, neither circumcision or uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule. The word for rule there being in Greek, canon, this standard. Uh, The standard is that which you judge something to be either legitimate by or illegitimate by. Now, when it comes to the Bible, canon gets used in two senses. There's the standard by which our faith is determined and practiced. And that happens to be the Bible. (laughs) The Bible is the final authority in all matters of faith and practice for followers of Jesus. 
The Bible is our canon. That's our standard. But the canon of Scripture can also be refer, uh, used to refer to a standard of the Bible itself. What books are in the canon and what books ought to be excluded? Have we got the right Bible? Should some of those 66 books not be in our Bible? Or should others that currently aren't in the Bible be in our Bible? And can all the words in each of the books be said to be the words of God issued and transmitted without error? Well, if you care about the first standard, which by definition, if you're a follower of Jesus, you will, then you'll be really concerned to know that the Bibles we have can reliably be called the genuine word of God. And that's the issue I'm addressing in today's doctrinal, one-off, or two-off really, we've got another one next week, topical talk. Uh, so I hope you're ready to get stuck into it with me. If you're a note-taker, we're uh, now at point one, Jesus and the Old Testament canon. For the early church, and this is possibly the most important point I'm going to make this morning, for the early church, the first canon was and is... Jesus himself. Jesus Christ is our first canon. Who he is. What he said. Some of which, much of which even, was almost certainly written down during his own lifetime prior to his crucifixion. That was considered as the standard of God's revelation. If Jesus said it, then there was no question. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, the Apostle Paul mentions that one of the particular commands he was giving happened to be the relaying of a command that Jesus himself had given. Jesus himself taught, as I'm sure you remember, in the Great Commission, that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and notice, teaching them to obey everything I have already commanded you. History tells us that even before the Gospels were written, the early church, who had an established Old Testament canon, were thoroughly comfortable to say, Jesus says this, Jesus said that. Just as they would say, the Scripture says this, the Scripture says that. Therefore, what Jesus made of the Old Testament, what Jesus thought the Old Testament was and, and how it was used, whatever that thought process is, that's to be the, the way that his followers think about the Old Testament, what it is and, and how it's applied. So what does Jesus think the Old Testament is? Well, Jesus would use the singular word, the scripture, to speak about an accepted body of literature that even his enemies from among the Pharisees never disputed. If Jesus said, the scripture says this, the Pharisees, they didn't dispute what that scripture was. They disputed maybe what it meant, but they didn't dispute that there was a body of literature called the scripture. What was that body of literature? Well, I'll show you. On one particular occasion when Jesus was debating quite fiercely with some Jewish religious leaders, he said, and I quote, Upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, 
from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah. Jesus is saying, you guys, you religious leaders within Israel, you've killed the prophets, all of them from Abel to Zechariah. And initially that might sound a little bit strange to us because elsewhere in scripture we probably know that Jesus has actually said that the prophets keep getting killed all the way up to John the Baptist. As a matter of fact, John the Baptist was beheaded in the time of Jesus. But you see, the way the Jews organised their Old Testament was that it began with Genesis, like our Bibles, but ended with two chronicles. Um, just to give you a little lesson on this, here's my English translation of the Hebrew Bible that I received in 1993 from a synagogue. And you realise on the front it says Torah Nevim Ketuvim. That's law, prophets, writings. That's the way the Jews have always divided up the Old Testament. And you can see them there written on the screen, right? It's the same 39 books... It's just that the ordering is different. And if Jesus wanted to attack the religious leaders, saying that their killing of the prophets was so extensive, well, a really good way to do that was to point out that the entire breadth of their scripture testified that they murdered God's messengers. And what do you know? Abel gets murdered right near the beginning, Genesis 4 the first book in the Hebrew Bible, and Zechariah, son of Berechiah, I bet you didn't know this, gets murdered near the end of two chronicles, the last book of the Hebrew Bible. When Jesus wants the whole Old Testament in view, he speaks of the beginning and the end of the same set of 39 books that you and I have in our English Bibles today, albeit in a different order. Interestingly, two centuries before this, some Jews living in Alexandria had produced a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Some copies of that translation included an additional varying section of books that later became known as, I wonder if anyone knows, the Apocrypha, that's right. Jesus made little, if any, use of the Greek Old Testament. And there's no evidence to suggest he gave any credence to the books of the Apocrypha as being scripture. Furthermore, the teaching within the Apocrypha includes the command to use magic, the forgiveness of sins by almsgiving, giving away money to the poor, and the offering of money for the sins of the dead. In other words, it's not exactly consistent with the teaching of the Torah, which all the Jewish sects regarded to be holy scripture. Over a millennium and a half after the Apocrypha was written, the Roman Catholic Church officially accepted it as being part of the canon. Uh, that was at 1546 at the Council of Trent, which was really a reaction to the Reformation. The Reformers held that the Church doesn't grant authority to various books, but it recognises the inherent authority in books that we esteem to be scripture. The Roman Catholic Church vehemently rejected that idea and they made that point in a big way by including a series of books for which the evidence strongly suggests that Jesus, the apostles and most, not all, but most of the early church leaders did not regard as scripture. 
Now, there is another big piece of evidence to show that the 39 books of the Old Testament are what Jesus himself knew and recognised as canon, but for the sake of time, I'm going to assume I'm preaching to the choir, and you can, of course, hit me up in the Connect form uh, if you've got any questions, uh, if you want to know what that big bit of evidence is. But put simply, the Old Testament you have in your hand is the Old Testament Jesus knew as the Bible. And that brings us to point two, Jesus and the apostolic deposit. There's a new term, the apostolic deposit. Uh, in his famous upper room discourse, the bit where he's having the last supper and speaking a lot, right? The famous upper room discourse in John's gospel. Jesus spoke at length about the personal work of God, the Holy Spirit. We heard it in our first Bible reading. One of the biggest roles that the Spirit would undertake would be to remind the apostles of Jesus' current and future teaching. Uh, so in John 14, 26, Jesus says, But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you, that is you apostles, all things, and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Then during that same Last Supper, just a bit further down, Jesus also says, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it's from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. Jesus' current and future word ministry will be imparted to his apostles by his spirit. That body of teaching from Jesus... All that he commanded during his earthly ministry and all that he would continue to teach these apostles in order that they might also bear witness would be given by the Spirit. And it's that, that, that body of teaching we're going to call the apostolic deposit. And what do you know? After the death and resurrection of Jesus, the apostles, if you remember the account, found themselves cowering in fear in locked rooms that, you know, and it freaked them out that Jesus just suddenly appeared without opening the door, right? But then after the day of Pentecost, when the risen, ascended Christ poured out his Holy Spirit on them, we see this radical transformation in Jesus' apostles. Uh, in Acts chapter 4, verse 8, Peter speaks in front of a gathering of rather indignant Jewish religious leaders, declaring to them that Jesus is the Christ. And when he gives that speech, we're told it's by the power of God the Holy Spirit at work in him, which is why we're also not surprised that the religious leaders are then baffled as to how he knew so much and could speak so boldly, such that we're then told a bit afterwards, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realised that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. The only thing they can account for, somehow he... He communicated with them a lot. Maybe he's still doing it, I don't know. You see, Jesus really did give his Holy Spirit to his apostles such that they could be reminded of all that he had taught and know all that he was continuing to teach them. That body of teaching obviously included the entirety of the Old Testament, which they already had in writing, as well as the teaching about what fulfills the Old Testament expectations and applies them to the new humanity that God was in the process of establishing. That body of teaching is what we might call, as I said, the apostolic deposit. And the apostle Paul, near the end of his life, told 
a non-apostle, namely Timothy, to guard that good deposit. Not surprisingly, with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives not only in the apostles but also in Timothy. He also told Timothy to make sure that other people knew it and were able to teach it. That body of teaching would be recognised, of course, by the way it accords with both the established scriptures and also the witness of the apostles. The apostle Peter would refer to the writing of the apostle Paul as scripture which would mean that those who received and passed on this apostolic deposit would not only have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the teaching of the other apostles, but it would now include the writings of Paul. Uh, I did a lot of research for this talk this week. According to this guy named Lee MacDonald, who apparently is the foremost expert on the construction of the canon in the world, at least seven, seven minimum, of Paul's 13 letters were in circulation and read in churches just like they'd read the Old Testament by the end of the first century. So we're not surprised to read 2 Peter 2 verse 15. Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. Remember, this is Jesus' head apostle giving the right hand of fellowship to Jesus' chosen ambassador, saying he's got the same sort of juice that they do, right? Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, you know, kidding, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other letters that people have written. No, as they do the other scriptures. The head apostle is calling the writing of Paul scripture. To summarise, the apostolic deposit is the word ministry of Jesus given by him during his life and continued by his spirit through the apostles after his departure. It was then passed on to various church leaders who naturally gravitated to the writings of the apostles or those closely associated with them, such as, for example, Luke. This apostolic deposit is the thing that has determined what Christians have by and large unanimously since the 3rd century, if not before, come to recognise what is the inherently authoritative word of God that makes up the 27 books of our New Testament. To quote the current principal of Moore Theological College, our own Dr Mark Thompson, Jesus testifies that the Old Testament is the word of God and his personal commissioning of the apostles as his ambassadors set up the basic architecture of the Bible that we have in our hands today. And that nicely brings us to the third point, the formation of the New Testament canon. Again, brothers and sisters, for the sake of time, I'm going to operate on a very reasonable assumption that 21 of the 27 books of our New Testament were never seriously disputed in the early church. 20, almost not at all, one, sort of half-half, but I'm going to take it, 21. Uh, well, I say that because in some time, roughly around 340 AD, this ancient historian named Eusebius of Caesarea, there he is, uh, took it upon himself to write an ecclesiastical history, as you do. In Book 3, Chapter 25 of his ecclesiastical history, out of 10 books, uh, Eusebius gave a list of what had been generally recognised 
by everyone, the, the church in its entirety. He listed the four Gospels, and it's got some funny words, the Quaternion of the Gospels, uh, Acts, all of Paul's letters, 1 John and 1 Peter. Incidentally, he also mentions the Apocalypse of John, which we call by a different name, anyone? What's the Apocalypse of John? Revelation, that's right. Uh, as being mostly agreed on, though there was some opinions both ways with that one. Uh, it's the other six books, Hebrews, James, Jude, 2 Peter and 2 and 3 John, about which there were varying levels of dispute. There was also dispute, not surprisingly, about books that were ultimately rejected from our New Testament canon, including, and I bet you haven't heard of some of these, the Acts of Paul, the Shepherd of Hermas, the Epistle of Barnabas, and the Apocalypse of Peter. Although just by the title, that would be a pretty sweet read, <laughs> the Apocalypse of Peter. Uh, Eusebius also gave a list of works that were not in question, but actually that everyone who's anyone condemned, repudiated, got rid of, uh, because they were recognised as, quote, absurd and impious, uh, and they had been deemed heretical. These included the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Matthias, and this is a funny one, the Acts of Andrew and John and the other apostles. It's like everyone's got to have their bit, you know. Like, you know. But in the way that Eusebius spoke about why the church in its entirety rejected these works, we actually get a really good glimpse into how the early church operated in accordance with upholding the apostolic deposit. Regarding the thoroughly rejected books, he says, and further, the character of the style is at variance with apostolic usage. And both the thoughts and the purpose of the things that are related in them are so completely out of accord with true orthodoxy that they clearly show themselves to be the fictitions of heretics. Which sounds like an awesome name for a heavy metal album, Fictitions of Heretics. Uh, put simply, these rejected works are so obviously not by the apostles or the close associates of the apostles, nor was their message able to be reconciled with the sound doctrine we have in the apostolic deposit, including the Old Testament. That is the basis upon which those final six books, Hebrews, James, Jude, 2 Peter, uh, 2, 3 John, ended up being included as the canon, recognised as authoritative, just as much as it was the basis upon which these heretical works were also excluded. Now, it's true, as you can see, that there is a certain messiness to the history of the New Testament canon formation. But that should be no more surprising than the fact that even with the scriptures long held to be authoritative and canonical, it has always been the case that there are those who recognise the voice of the Good Shepherd and those who will not recognise his voice, even though they're in possession of all the authoritative word of God. Friends, if God the Son was willing to enter into the creation, to take on human flesh, and yet remain the eternal word of God, John 1.1, 1, 1, then it's not surprising that the very human agency by which the scriptures were written need not somehow prevent God from communicating exactly what he saw fit to communicate. 
To quote our great reformer, John Calvin, let this point therefore stand, that those whom the Holy Spirit has inwardly taught truly rest on Scripture, and that Scripture indeed is self-authenticated, and the certainty it deserves with us it attains by the testimony of the Spirit. It was the providence of God, by the work of his Spirit, that the early church derived at the point where they recognised the authority of the 27 books that make up our New Testament. So what then with issues of translation, which I take it will also include issues of transmission? Friends, as I'm sure most of you know, the Old Testament was written mostly in Hebrew and the New Testament was written mostly in what we call koine or common Greek. Unless you're fluent in those languages, the chances are you'll prefer an English translation of the Bible. That translation can be as much an art as a science is absolutely no impediment to God the Holy Spirit ensuring that the written words take root in our hearts and minds. In fact, one of the many things God the Spirit did on the day of Pentecost to show who he really was, was to enable people from many different language groups to hear the word of God proclaimed in their own dialects. Now, translation, uh, as I'm sure some of you will know, works on a spectrum. At the one end, you've got very easy readability. At the other end, you've got the closest thing you can get to word-for-word accuracy. The more easily readable, the less accurate. The more accurate, the less easy it is to read. So you've got to make a choice. But in our case, we're absolutely spoiled for choice. If ever you have an issue grasping what the Word of God is saying in one English translation, simply pick up another translation and compare. Uh, There's these really weird group of people, I call them the flat earthers of the theology world, who have come up with this whacked idea that the King James Version is the only Bible that's actually legit, which is funny because it's a translation of the Bible for a start. Uh, But how stupid. You can have more and get more of the Word of God and better understanding if you compare translations. What then are the textual variants that our English Bibles often tell us about down the bottom of the page. You know how sometimes you read, like some manuscripts have this or some that, the other. Anyone got those in their Bible? Yeah, okay, good. Today's the day we're going to sort it out, people. Here we go. Here's a copy of the Greek New Testament that was given to me by the Bible Society in my first year as a student at Moore Theological College. I'm opening it up to the beginning of the easiest Greek which is Mark's Gospel. And the page that I'm looking at is the page that I'm putting on the screen, just so, because you can't see this, but you can see that. I've got um, the very top line reads. After that big number one, the word kind of looks like the letter A with a little apostrophe. No, 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 go back. It says, Arche tu euangelio Jesu Christu. Arche is... uh, the, the head or the beginning, to euangelio, the gospel, Yesu Christu, Jesus Christ, hope you know what that one is, theu, but then you realise those last two words, I'll put a circle around them, theu, the son of God, have little square brackets around them. That means there's an issue. The footnote there, see there's a little, you've got to really squint to see it, like one and an A, can you see that one? The footnote there, 
directs you to what's called the apparatus. In this case, apparatus one. The first thing you'll see there in the braces is the letter C. If that letter were to be A, it would mean that the translation committee for this Greek Bible were unanimous that the bracketed words are certain. If the letter there were to be B, it would mean that the translation committee were almost certain. C, however, which this one is, indicates that the committee had difficulty deciding which variant to place in the text. Remember the sentence? In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, son of God, they're the words that we've got an issue with. Now, in this case, there are five possible variations. For each one, we are shown the variation, followed by the information that tells you every possible collection of full or partial fragments that we have of that variant. See, there's all sorts of archaeological digs that have been done over the years and the centuries, and people have got all sorts of, like, thousands of copies of bits of Bible in all of it, quoted by people or written down as, as, as actual Bibles, right? And we've got to have a big code system to identify which each one is, right? So the first possibility, which you can see there, the first possibility is the one that, decide, that, that the translators actually decided to go with. Christu theu, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then there's all these letters, beginning with that funny thing that looks like a weird X with a one on top of it. That's actually the, that's the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph. That Aleph is code for a 4th century full text of the Bible called Sinaiticus, which is a really popular one. And that has the words, and this is the 4th century, in Mark 1.1. That's the one they've gone with. The B there means that another 4th century text called Vaticanus, which has all the New Testament books minus Revelation, also had in Mark 1.1. The D there refers to a 5th century text. The L is for an 8th century text. The W is for another 4th century text. That 2427 refers to what's called a minuscule, possibly a fragment of parchment that happened to contain this particular part of the text. But then we come to the next possible variant. Instead of Christu Huyutheu, Christ the Son of God, there are a bunch of texts that have, get this, Christu Huyu Tu Theu, which translates Christ the Son of God. <laughs> it's just that before the word God, Theu, we have what's called the definite article to make sure you know it's not Christ the Son of some random God, but Christ the Son of the God, the one that we think Christ is the Son of, right? And there's this huge smattering of manuscripts, minuscules, full text, partial text, along with a bunch of even early church fathers, as you can see down there, Ambrose, uh, uh, Jerome, uh, Augustine, who quoted this text in their writings uh, that have this particular variation. Then you've got another variation where some Latin manuscripts 
And a bunch of people who quoted it just had the word Christ without the Son of God bit. Now, they couldn't be right, you know, by then everyone knew those are Christ, the Son of God, just right Christ, right? So, on balance, the original manuscript of Mark's Gospel most likely had either Christ the Son of God or Christ the Son of the God. And because the translation committee couldn't agree, they left the phrase in brackets and gave us all the information we possibly need to make a call on something that makes absolutely no difference whatsoever to the meaning of Mark chapter 1, verse 1. <laughs> Far from being like Chinese whispers, the more manuscripts we have, the more accurately we can discern the original by way of comparison and contrast. If someone says there are hundreds of copies of the Bible, you say, Amen. That's why it's so accurate. There are thousands of people, Christian and non-Christian, with all sorts of theological positions who are all experts in various fields of linguistics, textual analysis, ancient languages, hermeneutics, all poring relentlessly over every single possible textual variant or inconsistency on thousands and complete or partial manuscripts to ensure that we get the most accurate reading possible. And even then, the parts of the Bible over which there's debate are so relatively few and so relatively small, including spelling errors, that no, small, no, no doctrine could ever be said to hang on them. You can trust your English Bible translations. Three quick implications. Firstly, as we read the scriptures, we encounter the clear and present word, the word communicated by God. Given that its original inscripturation, to coin a term, was made possible only by the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit in the apostles, and given that those only those indwelt by the Spirit can accept it, it follows that God himself, in the person of the Spirit, ensures that his word is read today by us, as you read in Hebrews, and that it also achieves the purposes for which he gave it. You want to hear God speak today? You open your Bible. Secondly, it's, as it's God's word, God speaking to us, it obviously remains the case that the Bible is the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. We don't interpret God's word by our experiences. We interpret our experiences by God's word. God's word calls on us to employ our reasoning but if our reasoning contradicts God's words, then our reasoning is in need of modification, not the Bible. Tradition has a very important place in the household of God, but if any tradition is found to be unsupported by the word of God, then the tradition needs to change or be abandoned, no matter how cherished it may have been. Lastly, there's what I call the heresy of the false dichotomy. Uh, a false dichotomy is when you say to someone, it's got to be either this or that, when in reality, both of them can apply equally. One of the most famous ones is that, yeah, the Bible's the Word of God, the New Testament's the Word of God, Jesus speaks the Word of God, but not the Apostle Paul. That there is a beautiful false dichotomy, and it's also heretical, and it's common, sadly. If you're going to say that what the Apostle Paul writes is give or take, but what Jesus says is authoritative... You've just shunned Jesus. 
Did not Jesus choose the Apostle Paul to be his ambassador? Did not the Apostle Paul recount three times in the book of Acts how he was commissioned by the Lord Jesus? Did not the Apostle Paul uh, receive the right hand of fellowship from the Jerusalem apostles you can read about in Galatians? If you're going to diss Paul, and if you're a Gentile, you really shouldn't because, frankly, he's your apostle, right? The Jews got of the other 11. You've only got one. Don't diss your own apostle, right? If you're going to diss Paul, it's like you're saying, Jesus, nah, you chose, I reject your choice, Jesus. You can't do it. Paul writes the word of God, and if you reject him, you've rejected God. You've rejected the one who, who, who gave him. That, that, that's, a, that's a beautifully heretical false dichotomy that, that often gets chucked around. There are others. Here's another one. This is a great one. You ready? We don't believe in the Bible. We believe in Jesus. <laughs> You see what, I, see what I've done there? It's like, well, and Jesus is loving, isn't he? So we can look at the Bible, we can kind of put that on a lower tier than Jesus. Now, at one level, of course you can. Jesus is the risen, glorified, ascended Son of God. He's a, a holy God we worship. He's our Saviour and our Lord and our King. The Bible's a book with lots of words in it. Okay, legit. We, yeah, I worship Jesus. I don't worship the Bible. But how can I be said to be a worshipper of Jesus if I relegate to second or third importance the very words of God that he speaks? another stupid false dichotomy that people use to get around what the word of God teaches I've said enough I don't even know if we've got time for questions actually no we don't because I'm too afraid to answer them I'm going to lead us in prayer and you can write some <laughs> and if you want you can put some on your um, thingamajig cards uh, yeah let's pray Heavenly Father we thank and praise you that you're the God who speaks that you've given a clear and present word and that you've delighted to use human agency to bring that word into being and that you speak to us uh, today and that the power of your Holy Spirit at work among us means that we can know the voice of the Good Shepherd and that we can respond to his written word as rightly uh, the word of God. Father, prevent us from uh, getting sucked into all the conspiracy theories and uh, all the attacks that uh, so often come towards the scriptures. Uh, may we be unashamed of Jesus and his words in this uh, crooked and sinful generation that he will be unashamed of us when he returns. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.